Starting the year off with a former regent for the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, you can't get much better than that. Elizabeth Simon has had an amazing career, and while she currently doesn't do many fraud investigations, she is on the more proactive side of preventing fraud from happening via compliance and ethics. And spoiler alert, like me, she toyed with the idea of law school. I think you will enjoy this episode as much as I did. Let's get started to a great 2021. Welcome to Great Women in Fraud with Kelly Paxton, Certified Fraud Examiner, Private Investigator, and Pink Collar Crime Expert. This is the podcast where thought leaders in fraud share their stories, wisdom, resources, and tips. For 25 years, I have worked in fraud and investigations in both the government and private sector. I love what I do, and I want to share with others who are also either working in fraud or interested in fraud as a career. This is where you will learn how to investigate but not commit fraud. We are, again, so lucky today to have another great woman in fraud. And um, the reason I was excited to have Elizabeth Simon was a lot of reasons. But one of the things is she was a regent for the ACFE. And I'm a huge proponent of the CFE designation. And I thought, what a better person to be on Great Women in Fraud. So, Elizabeth, why don't you introduce yourself and kind of give your journey in the fraud world? Sure, absolutely. So I like to say that I've done just about everything that you can do with an accounting degree. Uh, I started out in bookkeeping and taxes, internal and external audits and forensic accounting. And then now I'm in compliance uh, in my career. Um, I've been a certified fraud examiner for about 14 years now. And during those 14 years, I've used my certification in uh, forensic investigations at UI and then in-house at uh, doing internal audit, doing fraud-focused data analytics, uh, and then investigating ethics hotline cases. And then I was um, elected to the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners Board of Regents in 2007 and served there for two years um, before joining the board of the local chapter of the ACFE in Georgia. And I guess you could say that I kind of grew up in fraud prevention, um, but I really don't do it much anymore. So now I'm much more focused on compliance and ethics and on building out compliance programs for companies to ensure that employees are living the values of the company and following the laws, and then mitigating any compliance-related risk and reputational risk so that uh, in my current company, so that our residents can have a place to call home. And, you know, if there are any other fraud issues that come up in the, in, in the future, I would be a part of that investigation and lead those investigations. But luckily, that risk is much lower uh, for us in the industry that I'm in now than it is for other industries that I've been in. Well, you are not the first person who has been on Great Women in Fraud um, that has talked about proactive. And I think it is so important to be proactive, to stop the fraud, you know, penny wise, pound foolish. But, you know, we uh, it's just you've done a lot of investigations and it's better to stop them before they start. Absolutely. I would completely agree. I I mean, even my first role in-house in fraud was really around prevention. 
uh, and building out the fraud prevention program for the company. And now uh, I do that, that on a compliance and ethics side as well. So absolutely agree with that. Well, and um, another fellow podcaster, Christian Hunt of the Human Risk Podcast, he and I have, you know, talked over this past year, you put a good person in a bad environment, they still can go bad. So it's easier to make it a good environment. And yeah, absolutely. I've, I heard statistics on uh, from the uh, FBI, I think it, it was that said that 10% of your employees are always going to do the right thing, no matter what you do. 10% of your employees are always going to do the wrong thing, no matter what you do. And it's those 80% in the middle that it's a situational ethics type of thing where if they're presented with the right type of situations, opportunities, et cetera, then they may choose the wrong course of action. But if you put in front of them, you know, the values and the choices that they could make and what the company expects of them, then they may be more likely to go and choose the, uh, the right thing. Well, and that's how my career has kind of evolved is I would much rather put, you know, make it a good culture and stop it before it starts because, you know, good people make bad choices. And it's no fun being the investigator when you have that good person who's sitting across the table from you and they've done something really horrific. And so it's just a lot better to not have it happen in the first place. Absolutely. I was just listening to a podcast with Kara Swisher and um, Brene Brown. Are you familiar with Brene Brown? I've heard that name, but I'm not familiar with her now. She's like an Oprah. Oprah loves her and everything. And it was about shame and humiliation. And just having a good environment is so incredibly important. Like people want to do the right things, except that the end of the bell curves, your 10% that are going to do it no matter Mm -hmm. what. And the 10%, you know, but it's the 80% that we can really affect, which is so much more important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we try to do in the compliance and ethics team is really provide those 80% with the resources and the tools to make the right choices. Well, so we're going to kind of jump around on the questions here because this kind of leads to, if you could turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell yourself? Did you ever foresee this career? Uh, No, I mean, my career has gone all over the place. And this is really a hard question because my 18-year-old self probably wouldn't listen to me. (laughs) And like many 18-year-olds, they don't listen to advice of adults, but I think the one thing that I would probably tell myself is to go to law school right out of undergrad. Um, As much as I believe that my lack of a law degree actually helps me in my profession, there are still way too many people out there that believe that you need a JD to do compliance. So that's probably one of the things that I would, uh, you know, tell myself is that uh, just because you're done with your, you know, bachelor's degree and your master's degree once you get out of college, that you know you probably should go for the law, the law degree as well. But I really think that just not having that has actually helped me in my career and being able to translate the the legal speak that a lot of folks in what I do now, um, you know, what they are trying to say for the layman. Um, and I think it's really actually helped me in my career. That is so interesting because my daughter is a senior in college. And, um, for the longest time I thought she was going to be a lawyer and I'm like, Oh God, no, please, please no. And now I'm like, you need to go to law school. And part of that is the whole compliance and ethics world. 
is it really, they want that, but at the same time, they need investigators. So I was on with Mary Shirley. She had a, um, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine, who I know you know through Great Women in Compliance, they had a book launch party of sending the elevator back down. And I was put in a breakout room with this woman who is an attorney, head of compliance for a big pharmaceutical company. And she, someone in the breakout room said, my logic, my lack of law degree holds me back. And she goes, oh no, not if you, not if I were to look at you. So there's this, there's this thing where like, Compliance and ethics, you think you need that law degree, but a lot of people that are in it that have the law degrees are like, we don't want people with law degrees. So that's so interesting. And actually, that's what my current boss said to when he was hiring me is that, you know, they don't they aren't looking necessarily for a lawyer for compliance. And I work very closely with attorneys and love them and have the greatest respect for them. In fact, my dad was an attorney and he was, uh, you know, a big piece of how I got to where I am today. Um, but you don't necessarily need to be an attorney to, you know, affect the culture of your company and to ensure that the company is compliant with the laws and regulations that you do have to comply with. It's it's really about uh, making uh, the communication to the employees and the, and the values and the culture of the company uh, known to your employees so that they can make the right choices. Oh, I am going to send this to my friend who has the kind of, um, you know, imposter syndrome. And I will admit I have the imposter syndrome about not having a law degree. And I thought of it in my late twenties, before I became a federal agent, I looked at going to law school and I couldn't stomach the debt. There was just, I couldn't stomach it. And I look back and I'm like, okay, I would have made a lot more money had I had JD after my name, but I wouldn't have gotten to do any of the cool stuff I have gotten to do. So you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely uh, affected, I mean, not affected necessarily, but um, driven my career in different directions. And uh, it's it would have been a lot of debt. It would have been a lot of time. And it just wasn't something that I wanted to pursue at the time. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. We're just like very similar that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are, what are some best resources that have helped you along the way? And I think you're probably going to say that ACFE is one of them. Absolutely. The ACFE, I would say, is a great resource um, for members. Their website is, is just has so much information. Uh, there's a really great fraud risk assessment tool that I've used in. If you haven't used it in, uh, already, I would really encourage you to use it. Um, they built that tool out really well. And then they have great training uh, and other resources on their website as well. Um, and then the local chapters of the ACFE are, are another great uh, resource to, to go to um, from a networking perspective and, and, and the ability to meet other people in that in the profession, but also um, from some of the, the resources that they put out on their websites and in their, you know, annual meetings or monthly meetings. Um, and then on the compliance side, I have really enjoyed being a part of the Ethics and Compliance Initiative, ECI. Um, and that's an organization that does research into compliance topics and areas uh, of interest within the compliance profession. And I've been participating in three working groups that are creating white papers around various different compliance topics. 
Uh, the ones that I'm participating in are third-party compliance risk management, internal stress factors and how they impact compliance and ethics, and then uh, ESG, environment, social, and governance. Um, and they have a lot of resources for members as well on their website, uh, as well as other white papers in, in various different areas of compliance and ethics. So I don't know this for sure. I'm going to take a risk here, a risk, you know. Um, are you familiar with the ethical systems out of New York? No, I'm not. Okay, I'm going to send you that stuff and I'll put a link on the um, show notes. But ethical systems, you, yeah, you're going to love them. You are, oh, that's awesome. They're trying to bridge academia and business. And Allison Taylor, who's kind of, she's, she's, she's amazing. Someday I hope to get her on the podcast but it's a really fantastic group. So I'll send you a link for that and I'll put it on the show notes. Cause I think, I think we have a lot of similar, you know, it, it ties behavior to, you know, risk and ethics and compliance and all that sort of things. So um, that's awesome. Would love to see that. We're, we're risk nerds. Risk and <laughs> that's right. Nerds. That's right. <laughs> Um, that what another question I have is one common myth about your profession or field that you want to debunk. Well, one of them is the law school or, you know, that yep. but do you have another one. So I would say uh, the other one is around us being the department of no. And anytime that you go to compliance, we're telling you, no, you can't do that. And I think that also kind of goes along with the legal department as well. I think that, that the myth is that if you ask advice of the legal department, then they're going to say no. And that's completely a myth. I mean, what we really want to do is we want to be a trusted partner with the business to find out how we can do what they're wanting to do in a uh riskless or, or risk mitigated environment and uh, and help them to still succeed in what they want to do, but uh, not fall into the traps of, you know, reputational risk issues or uh, doing the wrong thing uh, in accordance with the laws or regulations that the company has. So we don't want to say no, we want to say yes, but or yes, let's figure out how to do this. Yeah, kind of like an improv. Yes, and. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so um, we talked about how how you're continuing to learn, but we always talk before the podcast. And um, two of the people, a shout out to Mary Shirley, great women in compliance, but also another one that we kind of have like rock star, Rob Chestnut. And you said you just finished his book. Yeah, so Rob has recently published a, a book, Intentional Integrity, and I absolutely love it and would recommend it to any of the listeners of this podcast as well. Uh, he just goes, he, he was the, um, the chief ethics officer at Airbnb, and he goes through a lot of what he uh, implemented in his company to ensure that the company was intentional about their integrity. And some of that is just you know, documenting and writing in policies, this is what we are going to do. And this is what we aren't going to do and not leaving a lot of that gray out there so that people could make the wrong choice. So when we're talking about that 80% that we had talked about earlier, and ensuring that they have the tools and resources to make the right choice, actually documenting it and writing it out that you are or are not going to do certain things. And and that's being intentional about the integrity. Um, one of the examples that he gave is around sexual harassment. And a lot of companies can get into trouble around sexual harassment. And so 
the rule was if you have a, a, an office relationship that, that you know you end up having a, some kind of a reporting relationship around it's the the one that's the higher up in the company that has to resolve that conflict versus the one that's the lower in the company and a lot of times uh, in other companies, it, it was always the one who was lower in the totem pole that had to make that choice or make that move or change, and it, and it impacted their career. So in writing that out, it, it avoids or it uh, keeps other people who are higher up on the, the chain from taking advantage of the people that are lower down in the company. And so things, just think little things like that, where you can define out what you're going to do as a company and, and ensuring the integrity of all of the, you know, the employees or the team members within the company uh, is, is something that you can do to help that 80% to make those right choices. Well, I heard him on a podcast and I, I think I'm going to get this right. He said, you get one no. And so yeah. if you ask someone out. That's another one. Yes. One no. And it was like, oh my God, that's genius. So simple. All it is is one no. And once you get yep. the one no, you're done. And it's like, why do we have to make it so complicated? It's like, it's just one no. So I heard him on that podcast and I was like, ding, ding, ding. Like, yeah. not, not rocket science. But, and then also on that podcast, he also talked about a woman who had come from another tech company. And when she heard his presentation, I think she said she started crying because she was like, this is never how it's been anywhere else. So yeah, I just, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I, I have too much imposter syndrome to try and get him on this podcast, but he seems like just such a nice guy that he might do it. So maybe we will try and get him in the new year to do it. Cause yeah, he, well, he would be, he would be a great guest for sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. We've got like, you know, hero crushes. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, If you had the chance to attend college now, which we do because it's COVID and everything's online. Are there any classes that like are subjects that you would really be interested in taking? I think I would probably want to learn more about the psychology of why people do bad things. So I've heard it said that most major fraudsters have both the narcissistic personality disorder and the antisocial personality disorder. And I'd love to learn more about that concept and the possibility of predicting a fraudster rather than catching one after the fact. So I might think about taking like a psychology class or some kind of social behavior class or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and after the I do this podcast today, I'm actually listening to Sam Antar, who is the crazy Eddie guy. He's doing a, a, a class. And so I've signed up for his just one hour presentation because I've seen him in person. And he's an interesting fraudster in the fact that he he's very upfront. He goes, I'm not going to say I'm never going to do it again. Like he goes, I I can't as a human say that I will never do it again because I did never say that I was going to do it in the first place. And I think, I think that's a little bit interesting, different fraudster take than most of them. Yeah. There's a lot to that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a colleague of mine who we sat next to each other when we saw him and he hated him. He was like, I can't believe he's here. And he hated him. I'm like, you have to listen to him because this is someone who's done it. So we have, we as investigators need to listen to that. So mm -hmm. he and I disagreed on that. And yeah. <laughs> so um, how long did it take you to see success? I mean, I think you've been successful from day one. You started at EMY and that's a big, that's a big start for people. 
Yeah, I mean, in my forensic accounting world at EY was was my start. But I would say that, first of all, I don't think that success is tied to money or a title. I think it's um, it's there's really a lot that you can put into the word success. And I can think of really two defining moments in my career where I started to feel like I was actually successful. The first one was really the first time that I was asked to be a part of a panel uh, at a conference. And, uh, you know, I was able to really contribute and help others in their compliance programs. And then the second one was when I felt I could really help someone's individual career. So a few jobs back, I had a direct report who told me that I was the first manager that she had that she felt really cared about her and her career development. And so when I found out that I could really make a difference in her uh, career and somebody else's career, um, I think that's how I really felt like I made it, so to speak. Yeah, that the word success, and I think I we talked about, I have to redo some of my questions to go out. And I'm, I'm torn on success because people kind of, most people revert to money. But mm-hmm. a lot of people on the podcast, and when I ask that question, it's like, well, at one time it was money, but now it's different. It's my legacy or, you know, and I would say I'm not earning as much as I did when, you know, I was a corporate investigator, but I'm influencing a lot more people. So I consider myself more successful now, but if you had that measure, so I'm going to have to sort of redo that question because it's such a loaded word. Yeah, it it really is. And yeah, I don't think it's about the money or the title uh, or even the network. I mean, kids these days, they think success is the number of views they have to a post or the number of likes they have. Um, I know my kids are that way, but I think I think success really is about how are you impacting other people's lives and other people's careers? Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. Um, (laughs) Some of these questions just don't reflect to you. Did you ever think of giving up and getting a real job? You've always had a real job. So that question doesn't, but did you ever think of like, you know, going to work at Starbucks or becoming an artist? So I I love my job and I wouldn't trade it for much of anything. But I will say that back in uh, the late 2000s, I thought about quitting my job and becoming a personal trainer. And yeah, if I if I could do my my dream job and I wouldn't have to worry about about money, then it would totally be personal training. I'm big into that. And um, I almost quit my job and did that. But then the recession of 2008 happened. So I'm really glad that I didn't. Uh, you know, personal training would probably be the first luxury item to go for many people. And I'd probably be out on the streets. Um, but I love running. I'm an endurance runner and, uh, would, and love fitness just in general and helping other people to become fit. So that's probably if I had to get a different job, um, that would be it. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Well, and you're in a stressful field. We're in stressful fields. So having that physical outlet, like I'm a runner, I'm not an endurance runner. I have run marathons in the past, but um, it is, and I, I don't meditate religiously, but I kind of consider my runs that time that I would meditate. I have to, I have to physically do activity. Like yesterday, I wasn't able to outside of taking a quick walk. And it just, I don't know, when you have a stressful job or stressful career, you need the physical outlet. So 
I, oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's my way to clear my head and I solve so many work problems when I'm running. <laughs> oh my God. This is so funny. So I worked a big case a long time ago and, um, I was out running and I was listening to a podcast and I heard this thing about, this was a while ago in like 2014 that you could see people who had bought followers. And I came back and I went to my attorney that I was working with. And I said, these three people have bought followers. And she's like, what are you talking about? And sure enough, it ended up in a lawsuit that they had bought followers to show their social influence, but they had bought them. So yeah, I, I can't tell you how many things I've solved also while I've been out running. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really clears your head. Yeah. And it makes you think about totally. Yeah. So I, yeah. She's like, how'd you find this? I'm like running a podcast, you know, (laughs) that's that's why I listen to all my podcasts too. So (laughs) yeah, absolutely. It's like, I don't commute anymore. So Mm -hmm. like I have to do it while I'm running or we walk the dog a couple of times a day. So, you know, I get to do it during that too. Um, What are some things that people struggle with in this field of investigations, compliance, and ethics? I think we talked about a little bit that we need to have that physical outlet. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. So, I mean, in in a stress, any kind of stressful type of career, you got to have that, that physical outlet and and to be able to clear your mind and to, um, to think straight. (laughs) Well, then, I mean, another thing not to feed it is sometimes we bring bad news to a corporation and it affects our brand. Um, and, you know, I, I can look at a lot of uh, CFEs, auditors, chief audit executives who their tenure hasn't been incredibly long. And you know why the tenure isn't incredibly long. They get tired of, you know, us walking in the door with like, you know, this is messed up. But not only that, but I think that in some cases you get put in sticky situations that you have to be able to walk away from your job. So if you are coming to the audit committee or you're coming to uh, leadership and with with a, you know, a senior leader who is doing something wrong, then and and they're like, it's okay, we're just going to, you know, push it under the rug. I mean, sometimes you need to be the one to speak out or to leave. Because if they're not living the values, then you, how can you do your job properly? Yeah, I mentor a lot of younger people. And I say you always have to have the FU because you have to be able to walk away. Yes, um, absolutely. And, you know, that was a lesson that I learned a long, long time ago. And even if you don't have it, if you have the sort of like mentality of having it, um, that you need to be able to walk away. I've never been asked to do something to cross the line, but I worked with someone who I knew my boss would ask them because they knew they didn't have that line. So, yeah, I just think. Yeah. That- and I've never had to uh, do that either. Luckily I've been working for very good companies, very ethical companies that uh, I never had. I was never put in that kind of position, but you never know what, what you're going to come up with. And uh most of the fraudsters, most of the people that are doing the bad things, they are developing good relationships with people. And people think that they're really great people, that they are, you know, trustworthy and whatnot. And they're hiding all of that. I mean, that's the big thing about fraud is that people hide what they're doing, the wrong things that they're doing. So 
I've never been put in a situation where I had to make the choice of stay in a, a, a toxic environment or leave. Um, but I could certainly see where something like that could happen. Well, and I also saw on your LinkedIn profile, which obviously, you know, you guys listening out there, you want to hook up with Elizabeth on LinkedIn, is that you did a lot of work with the alert line. And my biggest cases have come from, you know, tips. So it's so important that people understand that, you know, no retaliation. Absolutely. So one of the key pieces of my job is the whistleblower hotline. And they people call it different things, the alert line, the whistleblower hotline, ethics hotline, whatever. Um, but, you know, you, you have to have some kind of an outlet for employees to report anonymously. And you want you want them to feel comfortable coming to you with their name directly. But there has to be some kind of an outlet just in case they don't feel like they can do that without retaliation. And then just reinforcing to the leadership as you're doing those investigations that you can't retaliate against these people um, is, is so important and to have those policies in place and whatnot so that the comp- so it's clear, again, intentional integrity that uh, we're not going to retaliate. Uh, it, really, the helplines and the whistleblower lines are there to help the company because uh, when you find something or when somebody gives you a tip, then you are able to investigate it and correct that situation before the misconduct becomes pervasive. And when it becomes pervasive, then you've got a toxic culture in your company and nothing good can come out of that. No, no. I, um, I recently was consulting with um, an entity and they're scared to put in a hotline. And <laughs> I can show them facts that that's how we get cases and fraud is discovered that way. But they're kind of scared of the unknown. They think it's just going to open up this, you know, and it's just going to take a little bit of education. And I know that eventually they'll do it, especially with the ACFE showing and that tips are the number one way. I love auditors, but auditors sample. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What advice would you give to someone who's entering this field? Because again, you are, as an ACFE regent, that is a testament to your skills and to your reputation and to your network. Yeah, I think the biggest advice I would give someone uh, is never stop learning. Um, One of my strengths on the strength finders is that I'm a learner. So I love to learn new things. And I think it's really helped me a lot in my career to to continue to to learn about the various different areas of compliance, about the different areas within you know accounting, um, with with fraud. I mean, there's so many different areas from anti bribery, anti corruption to anti money laundering to OSHA, labor relations, whistleblower hotlines, fraud investigations, all kinds of different things that you can learn about. So. That's what I would probably, the advice I would give is just never stop learning. Yeah. And that is a consistent thread from my first episode with Cynthia Hetherington. She's like, we're curious. We, we are learners. And every guest that I have had on has been consistent about we are learners and never stop learning. So, yeah. Well, um, there's another question. There's two more questions. What haven't I asked you that you want me to ask you? Anything. I guess the the biggest thing is is just or or the, the information that I would want listeners to know is, you know, the, 
helping other people helps you. And I think the more that you can put out there, the more that you can share to help other people, then when you need that help, um, then they're going to be there for you. So I would say if there's something that, um, you know, that I would want listeners to know is just be open and be helpful to other people. And, and then you'll, you'll be helped along the way as well. I believe that so much because again, coming from a law enforcement background, we kept our sources tight and I had a hard time learning to share and um, the sources like, and now that I've given away my secret sauce, I'm giving away my secret sauce every week with this. It has come back. I'm going to say a hundredfold. And I, I truly, truly believe that, but it took a long time to get there because we want to, we want to help ourselves first. I mean, there's just personal self-preservation, but, and maybe it's we're at a point in our career that we can see that better, but I truly believe it. I mean, it's the fraud hashtag queen. One of my things is sharing is caring. And I just listened to Marcy Phelps on another podcast and she's like, you know, give it away. Like it, it'll come back to you help. So, yeah, absolutely. And then when we talked about this before, what is the last thing that you Googled before this interview? And you got to set it up why you Googled it. So one of the questions uh, for the the interview is, what is your favorite word? And um, my husband and I were talking about this because I don't really have a favorite word. And we couldn't really figure out an answer to that question. But he had mentioned that Nancy Pelosi had that same question asked of her. And so we Googled Nancy Pelosi favorite word so we could watch the YouTube video. <laughs> oh, that is so perfect. <laughs> and it still didn't give you your favorite word. I still don't know what my favorite word is. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I might have to change that question. Well, I cannot thank you enough, Elizabeth, because you are inspiring, you're motivating and you're doing you're doing such incredible things, not only in the fraud and the ACFE world, but now compliance and ethics. And I think it's a natural progression. So thank you. Thank you again for being here today. Absolutely, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Wasn't Elizabeth a wonderful guest? It's never Groundhog Day on Great Women in Fraud, but many of the same themes emerge. Curiosity, lifelong learning, getting that initial fraud bug and not wanting to stop doing that type of work. This is going to be a great 2021 for great women in fraud, you and the community combined. We have passed over 1,500 downloads. I have published a new book and there's a lot more planned for this year. Stay tuned. I always appreciate your support and time more than you can imagine. Here's to 2021. This has been another episode of Great Women in Fraud with Kelly Paxton. If you have feedback on today's episode or would like to be a guest or have someone you think we should interview, please tweet us at Great Women in Fraud or email kelly at greatwomeninfraud.com. We'd love to hear from you. Join us again next time for more amazing guest stories and tips. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, it would be great if you left a rating on iTunes. Or please tell a friend about the show. Your time is valuable and I appreciate it. Thank you for listening.